This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people upon whose land we're broadcasting in Melbourne and the Gadigal people, where we are heard on Radio Skid Row in Sydney. Tonight we'll hear about the next school strike for climate. It's coming up on September the 25th, which is school holidays in Victoria, and so it'll be a day of action there, and school time in other states. In their webinar, the school strikers invited these guests to talk about how unionists and First Nations can get behind the push for climate action. You will hear Edie Shepherd from Original Power, Greg Mullins, one of the emergency leaders for climate action, and school strikers Laura and Bailey in Sydney, and Shoy Sirengupta in Melbourne. We'll also hear from a teacher, Elizabeth Maddox, who's written a novel about students who are very aware of what climate disasters mean. It's called Category 5. To finish, we'll hear veteran unionist Dave Kerrin, who gives us the big picture of how workers can do more than protest. They can build a cooperative, publicly owned, renewable energy fueled future. We'll start with the webinar, and if you'd like to hear the whole thing, just go to BZE Podcasts. It will be linked to the summary of that podcast. Welcome everyone. My name's Laura. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm on Gadigal land. I'm a school striker in Sydney, and I'm going to be facilitating tonight's call. It's so great to have so many people here to help school strike make this a powerful and unifying action to push back on the government's gas expansion plans. We're going to be talking about uh, what the government and the COVID-19 commission is planning for the COVID recovery, how gas will affect First Nations communities, why unions and emergency service people need to care about climate change, what's planned for September 25th, how unions can help. Now we'll sort of go to a speaker, Edie Shepherd, uh, who's the senior organiser of Original Power, which is an organisation building the power of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities through collective action. Prior to her work at Original Power, Edie spent three years working as an organiser in the trade union movement, and she'll give a quick political update and an explanation of why this fight is important for First Nations communities. Hello again, Skiwi-R. Um, so, Edi Uanyadi, my name's Edi Asha Janali, which means warrior of the truth and the moon in my language. Um, and as Laura said, I have the absolute privilege of working at Original Power, which is a First Nations organisation that works with communities right across the continent uh, to ensure that they have the resources, skills and capacity to self-determine what happens to their countries, cultures and communities. I introduce you myself to you all as a proud Radri and Noongar woman and a proud rank-and-file unionist as a member of the ASU Private, NTU and First Nations Workers' Alliance. Now, as I'm sure everybody knows by now, and I'll whip through the political context fairly quickly because I'm on a call with unionists and I'm sure you're across what's happening, but the National COVID Coordination Commission is a problem. The NCCC being the body responsible for the economic recovery post-pandemic is stacked with fossil fuel bosses. And while progressives and governments alike have repeated this mantra that the virus does not have a political agenda, uh, this undemocratically appointed commission absolutely does. Uh, this is shown in the starkest of terms by the appointment of Nev Power as the head of the NCCC, a man with a long history of leading worker-bashing mining companies such as FMG and later Strike Energy, who only stood down as the chair of a gas company recently due to enormous public pressure um, about the very clear conflict of interest. And you can see a bit more about the connections between the fossil fuel lobby and the NCCC at Fossil Fuel Watch. I reckon a link's going to get posted in that chat and I'll um, leave it to you fellas to do your own investigation. But the leaks um, 
that have been consistently coming out from this body has painted a pretty dark picture for the future being imagined and has really clearly demonstrated the vested interests of both these bosses and the conservative Liberal government who has appointed them. It's a vision of pipelines and industrial fracking fields. At a time of enormous economic upheaval, where we're seeing the rapid rise of unemployment and the decimation of entire industries, from hospitality and retail right through to TAFEs and universities, big businesses are demanding billions of public dollars to prop up what is otherwise a losing bet, which is the rapid expansion of gas. Some of the leaked proposals include public funding to underwrite new gas projects, and particularly those that would be considered unviable, as well as scrapping hard-won moratoriums on gas put in place and cutting red and green tape to help the rapid expansion of gas, extra gas extraction, all of which would be a disaster for workers, communities and our climate. And we know that states and territories have put in submissions for subsidies of up to $1 billion of public funds for gas. And everyone on this call, I think, knows where that public money needs to go into building renewables, creating green jobs and preserving those jobs that are under threat. And just one example of where this money shouldn't go, the Northern Territory government is currently pushing for federal money for a gas pipeline and fracking infrastructure in the Beetaloo Basin. Fracking at a scale that has been measured to be the pollution equivalent of building and operating at least 50 new coal fire power stations and has been staunchly and consistently opposed by First Nations communities for the last six plus years. Now, First Nations communities have always and continue to be on the front lines of the defence of country, not just here in Australia, but globally. It's our mob that are taking on companies, governments and the native title system which is stacked against us to prevent the rampant exploitation and cultural devastation of our homelands from resource extraction, explosives and rapidly rising seas. From the Gomoroi fighting unconventional gas extraction on their homelands and sacred sites in New South Wales, the Ajumatna mob struggle to protect the physical manifestation of their creation and dreaming stories from underground coal gasification in the northern Flinders Ranges in SA, to campaigning to ban fracking in the north and west of Australia, blackfellas have been saying no to dirty and dangerous gas projects for years. But beyond saying no to projects that hurt country and people, our communities have been pushing to have their aspirations for their ancestral homelands realised. Traditional owners in and the Borrolula community, which is up on the Gulf of Carpentaria in the Northern Territory, who are also fighting fracking, are pushing for a clean energy transition in their region that allows them the freedom to live and work on country. The community are working to develop and implement a, uh, a pilot program for a community-owned zero-emissions electricity system for their township and provide a blueprint for other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders communities to roll out right across the nation. And through working in partnership with the mighty ETU's Northern Territory and federal branches, this project is taking huge steps and have just recently, it's the most exciting thing in the world for me, secured um, support and funding for a whole bunch of studies as well as investigations into how that the energy generated can be connected up to the grid. All this taking the community one step closer to addressing the rampant energy poverty in the area and creating safe, sustainable and dignified union jobs. And this is just one example of the kinds of projects that we need to see really rapidly roll out across Australia workers and communities standing together to win new jobs and energy systems that work for people, not just big business. So the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander demand, our demand on September 25th is quite simple. We're calling for the resourcing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-led solutions that guarantee land rights and care for country. Because for us blackfellas, accelerating climate change isn't just about the temperature, it is deep and profound because our connections to our countries cut to the deepest meaning of what it is to be First Nations people of these lands. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have lived sustainably and in harmony with our lands for time immemorial, over tens of thousands of generations, because harm to our country is harm to us. It's a very literal wound inflicted on our bodies, our lives, our laws, our families and our cultures are placed at risk by the rich and the powerful but we are not prepared to see our lands and waters defined by their potential mineral value or the boundaries of our nations reduced to a gas reserve, a shale basin or a coal deposit. It's not who we are. 
And we've seen what can happen when workers and their unions understand that black fights are everyone's struggle. The trade union movement has a really proud history of supporting First Nations fights for land justice. From the support of Aboriginal stockmen walking off the job in the Pilgrim in 46 and again in 66 at Wave Hill, to the black band stopping work at the Nookumba oil rigs and the trucks in late 70s and early 80s, we know what's possible when we act as a collective unified force. And there has never been a more important time to continue this legacy because the threat is real. The right has rarely let a serious crisis go to waste and they're using this pandemic to pass off political opportunism as pragmatism and necessity. We have to meet that threat at the scale in which it's being presented. Now is the time for social movements to be built and networks to be created that mean our post-COVID world changes direction. And at a time where political action and dissent has been crushed by the state, which we saw just the other day when the Black Lives Matter rally in Sydney was dispersed by the courts and heavy policing. It now is the time to stand up and fight back. This moment is an opportunity to amplify struggles across black, red and green movements and unite not only around our opposition to the proposed gas expansion, but for the recoveries and the futures that blackfellas, young people and workers need to see. And I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you, Edie. G'day you mob, Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong Stay safe and, of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. Um, Next, we'll hear from Greg Mullins. So Greg Mullins was the Vice President and Acting Secretary of the Fire Brigade's Employees Union in New South Wales and served as the New South Wales Fire Commissioner for 13 years, retiring in 2017. He spent his entire life fighting fires and is currently a volunteer with the Rural Firefighters and works with emergency leaders for climate action. He's an internationally recognised expert in the field of bushfires and the dangers of climate change. Hi, everybody. I haven't actually been fighting fires all all of my life. I had to wait till I was 12 before Dad would let me on the fire truck, but he thinks I lit a few before that, but we won't go there. Look, I'm coming to you tonight from Gummit-Igor land, I'd like, like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. And Edie, thank you for that inspiring talk. That was fantastic. A quick recap, and I'm sure a number of you listening tonight were directly impacted by the bushfires. Um, I was fighting fires across the state. Very quick recap. 2019 was the hottest, driest year ever recorded in Australia. And going back through the carbon record, there's never been weather like it. Um, going back thousands and thousands of years, we had... Probably the worst drought ever recorded. Mightn't have been the longest, but because of the high temperatures day and night, rates of evaporation have been incredible. Um, the year before, we had major bushfires in Queensland, New South Wales, World Heritage areas of Tasmania that had never burned before and are not adapted to fire. Um, we had tropical rainforest burning up in Queensland, and so. Together with a whole lot of other ex-fire chiefs, I knew, <clears throat> pardon me, that 2019 was going to be a really bad year. Um, I formed a group called Emergency Leaders for Climate Action early in 2019. We wrote to the Prime Minister a couple of times, um, tried to get a meeting with him to warn him that we had a bushfire catastrophe building because of climate change. And I'm reliably informed by people close to the Prime Minister's office, that because we mentioned two dirty words, climate change, we were just discounted as activists and uh, weren't to be listened to. Now, that that was a shame because what we predicted happened. Uh, It was the worst bushfire season ever recorded in Australia. Um, Just going over some stats very quickly, 3,100 homes destroyed, about 300 shops, schools, community buildings. Over 6,000 farm buildings destroyed, 34 deaths directly related to fires, at least 417 
um, related to smoke, probably more. Billions of animals killed. And as Edie was saying, imagine um, on country, your connection to country and seeing that. I mean, I'm still scarred by what I saw at bushfires down in um, Batemans Bay, kangaroos that couldn't escape from the fires. And I know my grandchildren will never see the wildlife that I saw when I was camping with my parents as a kid. But imagine um, if you were part of country and that's gone uh, for your lifetime. Um, 12 million hectares burnt, <clears throat> cities smoked out, losses, economic losses, at least 4.5 billion just in tourism. So this was a massive impact. Um, what's, what was the impact on people? Now, if, if you look at firefighters, for example, um, the, just the, the hours that were worked, um, I, I worked a number of 22-hour, nearly 24-hour shifts as a volunteer, but uh, Fire and Rescue New South Wales firefighters worked 24-hour shifts. Um, they had to travel to the fires, come back, so they were doing 30 hours plus. Uh, you saw the images of trucks driving through fire, the trucks catching on fire, the firefighters getting out their protective gear, putting on breathing apparatus and walking to safety kilometres away. How they survived, I don't know. That chilled me to the bone seeing that. Um, if you look at volunteers, people who run businesses, who are workers, um, losing their jobs, losing their businesses, not being able to employ people, the economic impact is huge. These fires went from July to February until Mother Nature decided she'd give us a bit of a break. And then we got flooding rains, um, hail, hail um, storms, you name it. Um, so look, why has this happened? And I don't have to convince you, I hope, about climate change, but I've studied this deeply because I saw this starting to happen in the 1990s. It was all changing and it's totally different now. We're in a new era of supercharged bushfire risk and don't be deluded by politicians who say we're okay or buy them a couple of extra aeroplanes. Uh, we can't handle it anymore in, on the, in the worst years. But 1.4 degrees rise, oh, it's about 1.1 degree increase in average temperatures since 1910 in Australia, a 20-year drying trend, um, far less rain in southeast Australia and parts of southwestern Western Australia. Higher nighttime and daytime temperatures, um, as I said before, more evaporation, a more unstable atmosphere, so we get extreme weather. Now, you may have heard about fire-generated thunderstorms last summer. We had dozens of them. I saw several myself when I was out fighting fires. I'd never seen one before, before this. Oh, yes, I saw one in 1975. My father talked about one. He saw a knot in 39 fighting fires back then. But they were rare. Now they're common because of a superheated, unstable atmosphere. Um, there's no question that it's driven by us, the burning of coal, oil and gas. Um, so now I, I talked about firefighters and, of course, that's my passion. Budgets have been cut. Um, there's places in Sydney that should have full-time fire stations that don't because when I was commissioner, I couldn't get the funding for the staff because the government wouldn't cough up for that. Park rangers have reduced the numbers, very difficult to manage land if you don't have those people. We need to fund Indigenous owners um, bringing back and conducting cultural burning. You can't just say, yeah, let them do it. You actually have to pay people. It's a job like they do in Northern Territory. But um, governments don't like giving away money or paying what they should be paying. Um, Indigenous people and those on the lowest incomes are always the first to be hit, the hardest hit, and it takes the longest for them to recover because they have less access to how how to re, how to um, access services, uh, knowledge of how to do it. They probably haven't got NBN um, or internet access, so it's very very difficult for these people to recover. Um, so look, I, I what I I hope is that you will get out there, talk about the 25th of September. What I worry about is my grandkids. Um, I'm in my 60s now. I'm still fighting fires, but um, not a lot that I can do in that space in years to come. I'll taper off, but 
I have a voice. And with my 32 former fire chief, fire and emergency chief colleagues, we've found our voice. And we're out there calling out the lies, um, dopey politicians who should know better and shouldn't be paid for the rotten job they're doing, saying that there's no such thing as climate change, that it's inner city latte sipping whatever's. Um, the insults were, so I better not go there, I better not insult them, but we, we pay them, they work for us, and we need to tell them what they need to do. It horrifies me to see the Narrabri gas project um, by Santos being put forward. Apart from the bushfire risk and the environmental, the rape of the environment up there, 850 gas wells in pristine country, um, what they'll do to the Great Artesian Basin and the water. Um, it's just disgusting. An independent organisation, so, so it's just not needed. So this government, for some reason, is wedded to the fossil fuel industry. Um, whether it's corrupt or not, I don't know, but we don't have a federal corruption commission for some reason. We have them in states and territories, but something's not right. So we all need to find our voices and say enough's enough. We've just seen what climate change is doing. It's going to get worse, far, far worse. Um, believe me, it, the trajectory was like that. It's some Mother Nature has put her foot on the accelerator because uh, carbon dioxide's gone from 280 parts per million back when the Industrial Revolution started to 415, which is a massive increase. Uh, we know what CO2 does. So, look, thinking about tonight, my parents were strong unionists, um, all my family, really. I, I remember as a kid, mum and dad told me um, we used to go to anti-war marches, Indigenous land rights. Um, I remember as a kid handing out things for the referendum in 1967. Who would think in a so-called modern country that the people who owned the place first weren't allowed to vote? Well, our family was involved in what was right. And mum and dad said, that's union business because they're all workers, whether they're employed or not. And if the government won't look after them, we need to get together and do it. So look, here's our, here's our opportunity to add to a, a worthwhile voice to say enough's enough. We need a renewables-led recovery. We need to create new jobs that will last for decades ahead, not um, once we have stranded asset, assets, when the rest of the world comes to its senses and doesn't buy our coal and gas, we're stuck with an old range of technologies. We need to force this government to do the right thing. So, look, I'll, um, I think I'll leave it there and um, good luck with everything. I can't stay with you tonight, but um, good on you for, being, for tuning in tonight and do everything you can to get the message out there. Gas is poison. It's, it's not a transition fuel. It's there for decades. If you saw Penny Sackett, the former uh, chief scientist, said today in a submission, it will push us over our carbon budget. We will never meet the Paris targets or anything else. It's dangerous. Thanks, everybody. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. I'm just going to talk about how unions and workers can support this campaign. So last year, 30 unions from around Australia came out and supported the school strike for climate strike on September 20th. This support from the union movement made the strike one of the largest climate mobilizations in Australia's history. 350,000 students went out of on strike and the world took notice. This year in May, we again organised a National Day of Action and reached out to all unions for support. Our strike included the union demand for a just transition for all workers involved in fossil fuels. After the coronavirus stopped outdoor actions, we moved the May 15th action online, but continued to demand justice for workers as well as action on climate change. Hundreds of thousands of student strikers are the next generation of union activists. We're asking unions to continue supporting this important movement and to join us in the fight for a better, more sustainable future. So the next steps for unions are to one, pass a, mo a motion at your workplace or within the executive of your union 
to endorse the Build Our Future Climate Justice and Jobs campaign. There's a template motion found on our website along with the sign-on statement. Number two, sign on to the campaign on the website and promote the Global Day of Action with a statement from your union, executive, workplace or council. Number three, send an email to all workers and share the action on social media. A, de a declaration of support for the movement from your union would be amazing. Number four, decide on a COVID appropriate action that can take place inside or outside the workplace and register the planned action on the website. Number five, set up a committee in your union and elect a climate action representative to coordinate with School Strike for Climate in the future and help us plan the next action to achieve a just transition for all workers. So those are our five main steps and to do's. We are in the process of reaching out to all of the unions that were, in, that were involved in the um, previous student strikes and events um, and also building on that relationship. So that's um, myself um, and Edie are both involved in contacting and talking to unions on behalf of the students um, to really try and build what support we can. Edie, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think the other thing to add in there is like, yes, we're talking to the people that we spoke to last year we're also talking to more people than we were speaking to last year and and using as many avenues as possible to speak to as many union officials and rank and file activist union groups as well um and it, for example me in particular i'm working through union aboriginal and torres strait islander committees which are like rank and file elected bodies a lot of the time so we're trying to make sure that we're talking to as many different ways like points of entry for the union movement as possible. And if you have any suggestions of who we should be talking to, please let me know because there's a lot of bloody unionists, which is like the best problem in the world to have, right? But we want to talk to as many people as humanly possible. we got a question here. Is there any plan to talk to those unions that support gas? Edie? I mean, that's, that's, that's a real long-term game, isn't it, Colin? Um, the thing is, everyone on this call, I'm sure, is aware we have some comrades who support gas amongst other forms of energy that I personally would not be so much of a fan of. That's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but it's okay to know that that's there. We are continuing a conversation. We've been, like myself at Original Power, have been talking to, I don't know whether I'm meant to be naming you, you know what, here we go. Um, myself in my capacity as Original Power, we've been in conversations with the AWU for about four months now. I'm pretty stubborn, so I'm probably going to keep talking to the AWU for maybe a couple of years if that's what it takes. But it's also one of those things where if we can come to more of a collective position within the movement more broadly around questions of gas versus renewables and that sort of stuff, it makes those conversations a whole lot easier. So I think we all kind of need to be talking to those unions as much as possible and bringing them into the, the good side of the tent, the one that doesn't, you know, burn the planet. <laughs> Elizabeth Maddox is a teacher in Sydney and some of the school strikers were in her class. I asked her to describe how the urgency of climate action grew in the school over the last few years. Slow, I'd say, in gathering momentum, but then quite momentous as it has unrolled. So there's always been a group of students who have been very conscious of climate change. I'd say that when I was teaching in Malambimbi, many, many of the students were very aware of it. And in Sydney fewer. When it took off, I noticed in the crowds at the last school strike, the huge one, that there were many trade unionists there. And I really appreciated that when I'd go to these meetings, union meetings that I'd be reporting on for climate action, that there would be sometimes these young students there, 14 years old. I know when I was 14, I never would have been at a union meeting. I never would have understood what they were talking about. And these young people were really trying to understand the difficulties, for example, of MUA seafarers who are working on uh, servicing oil rigs, for example. You know, they're over a barrel. They have to do this work to have a job, but it's very much connected with fossil fuels. So these 
young people are not going to come in uh, naively to the future. They really are trying to understand what the score is and how difficult and, and how we have to work together to get a just transition. That's right. And and the the student leaders have also become so very knowledgeable about the subject. Mm. They can really, they are so articulate and they are so aware, not only of what's happening, but also of how to manage what's happening, about how to talk about it so that they're not going to intimidate other people and how to talk about it so they're going to maintain optimism and empower people. It's, it's staggeringly impressive. Mm. But I guess what I've seen in the last say four, five years, is I've seen a gradual rise in um, levels of student awareness. And it's sort of, um, it's sometimes been something that has been coaxed along. So, for instance, by students who are very brave. I had a, a student a few years ago who um, was a, a very uh, courageous vegan, one of those people that I told you about. She agreed to speak to the school assembly about being a vegan now on the same occasion on the same occasion another person was speaking to the school assembly about um, how you can help um, climate help um, reduce global heating by um, eating less meat and so this person spoke very moderately about how um, a meat-free Monday might be a helpful thing and then this other lovely climate warrior got up and said, no way, you can't just have a meat-free Monday. You've got to stop now. <laughs> it's really important. She laid down the law and I thought she was terrific, but the response was not good. Following that, gradually all the student awareness was arising in this time. Then we did have the first, then we did have the first student strike after that speech and a lot more um, student general awareness of student engagement. And then we had, it was, I think it was last year and I think it was Science Week, and we decided to, the, the staff decided to hold a school screening or the screening for the, June, the middle years of David Attenborough's um, film Climate Change, The Facts. And the producer from the science show came and did a Q&A with the students. Unfortunately, the film was out of sync. So we actually had um, David Attenborough's voice coming out of Greta Thunberg's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> as you can imagine, there was similarity, which was good because we needed a bit of levity under those circumstances. <laughs> and, um, but the message sank in. So student strikes were going on around this event. And then following this, the last thing that really made me think that it's really become a mainstream thing that students are really all understanding was when several of my colleagues organised to hold a climate forum, a climate change forum in the school. And they had sensational speakers. So there were eight speakers um, was chaired by Craig Rucastle and um, we had Robin Williams from the Science Show. We had two female scientists, Byron Smith, who's a climate change psychologist, talking about things. We had their chair of the Electric Vehicles Council of Australia. There was a sensational lineup, and I should mention that we had had a, a few days of entirely smoke filled skies prior to this meeting. Entirely smoke filled. And so everyone was coming to school already feeling a bit sober. And these, when these people got up to speak, everyone who was up on the stage spoke as though it was obvious and clear that um, global heating is a very, very serious issue that needs to be tackled. But everyone was optimistic, positive, willing to, to um, take up the challenge, encouraging people uh, about ways to take up the challenge. And there was not, I would hazard to say, there was not a single student nor a single staff member present, and there were very many of both at this meeting, who was not completely convinced of the necessity and the urgency and the possibility of mm -hmm. all this coming. And another thing is that it's really lovely to see other people, not, so not only the student leaders who've been in the public eye taking up the mantle, but others, others yeah. being ready to pick up the slack. So not long ago, um, the school environment group and the school amnesty group held a joint meeting, which they held because of COVID. It was all in the, in the school hall, so we could have larger numbers. And um, it was chaired entirely by the students, of course, and one of the climate leaders was going to be present, but was unable to be. And another student just 
understood and she spoke to the to the group who were there to write they were there they were gathered because they wanted to write submissions um, to call for the Narrabri coal seam gas project to be cancelled mm. and they um, and, and this student who was not an expert got up and she said look I don't know nearly enough about this but we all need to inform ourselves and this is how <laughs> these students were willing all to um, inform themselves and to embrace the opportunity given by the state government to make a statement. We're talking to Elizabeth Maddox and as well as being a teacher she's written a novel called Category 5. It's about a French class going on an overseas excursion just when a Category 5 storm sweeps across the Pacific. The two young people in this extract uh, a girl narrator who's an islander and her friend Jamie and they've decided that despite the disaster in the Pacific Islands they want to still go there as part of the relief effort. I always knew I meant it when I said I wanted to make a difference. One of these days I'm going to do something honourable like, I don't know, a year volunteering or if I get the marks, ha-ha, become a human rights lawyer. But Jamie, I'm ashamed to say I thought his activism was a kind of fashion statement and accessories like his hemp shirts and his recycled notepads. For God's sake, he carries his mobile phone in an Oxfam Easter egg bag. It's all rough grey organic looking cotton with a felt chook applique on the front. Only he could make that a hipster thing to do. And now I'm doubting myself because there's no evidence of me realising any of my dreams, not even the vegetarian one. I still like my roast dinners way too much. Beef bourguignon and the good old pork and prawn hangy, moist with sweet potatoes and sweet corn and chicken fat. Ugh. I run my toe along a seam in the carpet. I'd always thought Jamie was the spoiled brat. I'm the careful one who never goes to cafes if I can help it, the one who'd rather watch a film online than spend money to go to the cinema. But my vision of slurping on coconuts in Numea with our big hats and our iPhones, the vision I can't let go of, is pretty sickening. I can't deny it. People have drowned and I want to go scuba diving. I bend down to pick up the staple and flick up a scrap of paper out of the groove where it's been stuck. I have to wrap my head around this new version of our holiday and I'm telling you it's not a comfortable fit. Cyclone repair. Being blown away in canvas tents and living on boiled rice while nurses jab babies for dysentery and we put the roofs back on buds, busted churches. I'd have to repack my suitcase completely. Yes, of course I want it, I snap at him. What are we waiting for? Jamie jumps back and hugs me so hard he squashes the poster on disaster relief for society and culture that I've got tied onto my backpack. Steady on, I tell him, smiling and frowning at the same time the way Avalon does. Let's do it then. And he actually drags me to Ms Post's open door, inside even, knocking on the door from inside like I've never done in my life before and if I survive, I will never do again. Ms Post lifts up her little chin and peers down her nose at us through her glasses. Yes? She looks preoccupied. In fact, I'd say she looks ready to refuse whatever we might ask. I grab Jamie's jacket and try to pull him away. It's okay, I start to say, but Jamie's talking at the same time. Oh, Ms Post, would you have a minute? She can't help lighting up a bit when Jamie starts talking. She loves Jamie. Everyone does. He's so charming and his eyes are so bright and his smile is so sunny that he wins people over but just by looking at them. Me, on the other hand... I don't reckon she even knows my name. I can feel it as she glances at me and I slump a little into myself, hiding my body with my arms, making sure the corners of my mouth are raised just a smidgen so they can be taken as a smile, even though my eyes surely show her that I know she's, not, she's just not interested in me, that quiet islander girl in year 11 who never says boo to a goose. Josie and I have something really important we want to ask you, Jamie says, every fibre of him alive and urgent and living the now. Ms Post doesn't like the sound of this, no matter how much she likes Jamie, and she transfers some of that dislike to the big lump of a girl standing beside Jamie. That would be me. What's wrong, she asks me. But Jamie has no intention of leaving this to me. Ms Post, he begins, and I'll swear he's rehearsed this in front of the mirror. We want to go to Numea, not for the glamour trip that was planned. We want to go and be part of the relief effort. He takes a step closer to her desk and clasps his hands in front of his chest. I can't look at him, he's just so over the top. I have to hide my mouth with my hand. Miss Post glances up at me, not missing a beat, and I pretend to cough. We want to give back to the community, like you say, Miss Post, and this is our big chance. The tickets are booked, the time is perfect. All we need is the political will to get it happening, like you tell us, Miss Post. It's true. 
She's always talking about political will, but he's not finished yet. The people of New Caledonia need able-bodied, self-sufficient people without any emotional baggage or dependence who can actually get on with the rebuilding of infrastructure in their poor, devastated country. Miss Post pushes her chair back and gets up from behind her desk. She walks around it to the open space we're standing in, her head tilted right back up to look at us. She doesn't put her hands on her hips. She doesn't need to. You're saying you seriously want to go? I am. Jamie nods like a religious convert. Then she eyeballs me and I nod too, tentatively at first, then with more fervour as she looks me up and down, appraising my sincerity. Hmm, she says and wanders back towards her desk where she picks up a paper. Have you spoken to Miss Andrea Mora about this? Not yet, Miss Post. He keeps quiet this time, waiting for her to tell him off, head bowed. I shake my head minutely at his performance and whoops, Miss Post's eyes don't miss a trick. Her head whips around and this time I shrug my shoulders and look uncomfortable and roll my head around a bit as if I've got an itchy collar or a muscle cramp or something. I can't wait to get out of here. Seems to me, she says, looking from him to me and back again, and yes, her hands going up to her hip region, that this is a pretty half-baked idea. And what about your classmates? Again, Jamie looks down sorrowfully. I'm afraid we haven't had a chance to confer yet, Miss Post. She looks at the paper in her hand. The fact that she hasn't said no means that she hasn't given us a positive rejection and my heart speeds up. We'll do that as soon as they get to school, Jamie promises. Hmm, she says. I give a lot to know what's on that piece of paper. If it's about our trip, we're in with a chance. If it's an order for books or a letter from, from a new enrolment or a fee from a building company or anything else, then we're stuffed. We'll get back to you as soon as possible, Jamie promises. I grab his jacket again from behind so she can't see and mutter something about going. Thanks so much for, for your time. I know you've got a thousand things to do. Hmm, says the eloquent Miss Post again, sitting herself back at her desk, looking through papers and not at us. This hmm is not approving. We seem to have been dismissed. Jamie walks purposefully ahead of me a few metres, then he stops in the corridor, grabs me by the shoulders and jumps up and down. Finally, he stops and burrs in my ear. We did it! If Miss Post walked out of her office right now, we'd be in full view and I pull away, walking down the corridor, leading Jamie by the wrist. As soon as we got around the corner, he gives a repeat performance, jumping up and down and micro yelling, we did it! Take a chill pill, JJ, we haven't done anything. His eyes widen and he rubber necks at me. That woman, he says, mark my words, C.O.C. Toupee, that woman is on our side. He does a little tap dance kick in the air. Numea, here we come. So that was Elizabeth Maddox reading from her novel Category 5, which was favourably received at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival and is yet to be published. I asked her what the students in her novel learned. I think it's humility and that it's possible to do a little bit. I'm speaking to Year 12 student Shoi Sengupta in Melbourne. She told me she's hoping to study international politics and surely the experience organising a school strike for Climate Day of Action will energise her. I asked Shoi about the next day of action, which is September the 25th. Yeah, I guess we are wanting to send like a really powerful message to the federal government against their kind of plans for a gas-fired recovery. We are just kind of planning for it to be maybe more decentralised and um, a lot more focused online, I guess, um, for uh, September 25th, considering restrictions and all of that. So, um, yeah, for um, Melbourne, for example, um, in Victoria, I guess most people will probably be joining like an online event that we are hoping to run um, and in other locations where restrictions permit, I guess, there will be um, offline events as well. But um, basically we are just kind of still trying to do the same thing of rallying all of our voices um, to speak to the government about um, wanting to fund a uh, a just and sustainable recovery from COVID-19 because we know what a massive opportunity that this is to transition our economy um, and stand for climate justice instead of investing yeah. further in the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. I wondered if Shoy got much encouragement from school. Um, my school's been pretty supportive, yeah. They've um, said that students who are interested, who've you know, got parent permission, I guess, um, are fine to go and attend these school strikes because, you know, it's a part of our democracy and of uh, students, you know, using their voices. But 
September 25th is actually in the school holidays for some states in Victoria and Queensland. So it's not really a strike this time around. We're calling it more a day of action. We're still going to be doing a lot of organising within our communities. I asked if the pandemic had crushed the climate movement or made it pivot onto a new path. I think school strike is clearly on a uh, trajectory of growing, like we saw in September 20th last year, that there were some of the biggest strikes that you know we've seen. And it's definitely been you know difficult during COVID-19, uh, and maybe some of that momentum seems like it's dissipating, but really coming out of coronavirus, like out of this pandemic, is a chance to keep growing because we know that this is such a pivotal point for us to invest in a uh, sustainable economy. So really, this is a chance for us to keep pushing and actually keep growing. And I think, honestly, like the climate justice movement requires as many people, it requires like the whole population. And so there is definitely the opportunity for us to keep growing because especially as we see the effects of climate of the climate crisis coming closer and closer to home, you know, we saw the bushfires last summer and, you know, these kinds of things will make it more and more apparent. And there are lots of, you know, dedicated students and adults as well who are committed to expanding the movement. Yeah, all these factors will really just continue our growth to hopefully involve like the whole Australian population would be the goal. People have been surprised how big government can put in resources in an emergency. We've seen this in COVID. What are your reflections? One of the key things is how important it is to listen to the experts and that's really been proven during this pandemic that we've needed to listen to you know the medical and health experts and it's exactly the same for the climate crisis that um, when the scientists have been telling us the facts for decades and have made it really clear that we need to transition to renewables to um, stop our carbon emissions. That is clearly what we need. I guess the hope would be that if the public can recognise that and push the government to also recognise that and act on that, act on the experts' advice, then that's where we could make a difference. And also, again, like you, like you mentioned, of the power of governments right now, like I said, like it, the governments w will be um, injecting more money into the economy and it's just about where that money goes and making sure that it goes to the right place. Um, yeah. The school strikers are asking you to join them on and support them. Their website is www.schoolstrikeforclimate.com. And it's about the stay of action called Build Our Future. You can find out more about the day and access guides for holding an event or spreading the word in your school, your workplace or your union. Some of these resources are still coming, but they will hopefully be up soon. Please go to schoolstrikeforclimate.com. Build Our Future. Thank you very much to Shoy Sengupta. Now we'll hear from Dave Kerrin. He's the co-founder of Earthworker Cooperative and... One part of that is Earthworker Energy. They make solar hot water systems, including heat pumps. The other part is Red Gum Cleaning Co-op. My fondest memory of Dave Kerrin is seeing him in Swanson Street at a massive rally about climate action, and he was carrying a giant heat pump tank. And when I went up to ask him, I said, how can you manage that? And he said, it's only a, a dummy but he was walking down the street carrying this heat pump. He's been at this earth worker, building up support for it for years. The power of our marching feet, our voices raised along the street. We'll see this battle won. We'll see this battle so most people, when we, when they think about Earthworker, they think oh, they think of a little factory in Morwell, and we're still trying to get a. a, a I'm not going to sit here and say we, we've found the answers. Uh, we we are struggling to get things like basic things, like commitment from a government to give us procurement. Now you would have thought, you know, with all the talk around bounce back out of out of COVID, you've got a factory. It's shovel ready. It's in the heart of the coal region where we know there are going to be more closures. Not rocket science, is it? You'd surely you'd say, well, all right, product, it's the best on the market here in Australia. Even from a capitalist point of view, you'd say, well, okay, well, no, doesn't happen. Doesn't happen by magic.
It'll only ever happen because people like us get behind it and push and push and march and demand, and, but it'll happen one day. So in Earthworker, we thought, well, if we don't go big and bold, this little effort that we're making with a lot of work will go nowhere. So because we're a, a Victorian Trades or Council project, we went to the building industry group of unions. So we went to the, the four unions, the CFWMEU, the Electrical Trade Union, the Plumbers, and of course, the AMWU. And we put a proposal that... We wanted to put a powering Victoria Cooperative Steering Committee together to drill down and look at what would it take, what would it look like to green Victoria and to do that via cooperatives that the working people owned and controlled, using our socialised capital to do it, a superannuation, which, by the way, is still described as private capital. Now, Turnbull, when he went over and spoke to the American governor, said, we do great things back home. Oh, yeah, we do great things. We, with our public-private partnerships, we, we get our, our private capital in the form of superannuation and we invest it. Uh, even in our own movement, we talk about the employer contribution to superannuation. Well, there never was one. It's work we've done. We've been paid for it and we set part of the wage aside. Even the commission, when first super first came about, super was described variously, but as the unused component of the workers' wage. We've got to establish, finally establish, democratic control over that socialised capital. And we believe a cooperative structure is, is one of the best ways to do that, at least to provide that as an option for people. A cooperative of workers that can direct the way in which that super is invested and used. It's become obvious that as we've gone ahead, nearly 12 months work now with the Powering Victoria Cooperative Steering Committee, that there were two areas of work. One was around energy efficiency, where our workers go in, do an audit, our tradies and labourers go in, do the work, and if the working people can't pay the, the service, the work, the labour uh, and, and the goods that go into their house or the, their office, then they can, by becoming a member of Cooperative Power Australia, uh, the union retailer, uh, they can pay it off on their energy bill. So a nice circular set of economics that provides us with the capacity to put social justice in place. The second area of work was green housing. And we believe by the end of the year, we'll have our first parcel of land. Basically, by workers joining um, a housing cooperative, an earthworker housing cooperative, uh, which they can do by directing a wage increase that they might achieve through their union's efforts, uh, they can become a member and they can go on a list. We want to take young workers and their families and put them in homes. We want to make this as part of union work so that we're not simply uh, making demands on private employers and governments in relation to wages and conditions, but that we are beginning to put our own social policies in place and creating a pole of attraction uh, for our superannuation, our socialised capital. And we want to do that globally. So we're looking at SSFTAs, social sector fair trade agreements. So every time we put a, a cooperative in place, a factory, a workplace in place, we want to reach out to our fellow workers in Argentina, our fellow workers in Venezuela, in Cuba, in China, in North America. We want to put that factory there under their control. We want to take cooperatives that they might have built and put them here under our workers' control so that we begin to mobilise through solidarity around work and the response to climate emergency through that work to build the critical mass of workers' capital that will begin to see us be able to learn, to learn to learn how do we run a workplace? How do we federate that into a group of workplaces and manage that? We want to introduce concepts like social sector fair trade agreements and the global solidarity built around work and response to climate emergency um, and to link that into the human rights struggles and the other struggles of our fellow workers around the world. Uh, we, want to, we want to popularise the idea of public social partnerships, PSPs instead of PPPs, uh, where we take our socialised capital and we link it to uh, levels of government who want to involve themselves in an equitable way um, uh, in the projects around building a new green power grid, uh, the, 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 the grids that we need, the new grid, green transport grid, uh, the new green water grid, uh, the, the, the new green training we need to do in all government departments, um, for instance, repurposing the military um, to uh, play the role of, of mitigating against climate emergency. Um, we want to put public social partnerships in place that economically and financially begin that process. Um, we want to, in terms of our social sector fair trade agreements, just to go back to that, we want to um, link our organised labour movements and our cooperative movements. For instance, in North America, there are over 11,000 workers' co-ops. You never hear that about the American economy because, again, it's, uh, well, there are only five states in America where you can, where you can actually set up a, a one-person, one-boat co-op. Now, now, why is that? Well, because they were always seen as a Cold War threat. 
you know, here were people, whatever, however you wanted to phrase it, they were talking about the, the people in community democratically owning and controlling um, the means of production. But we want to make these links with our unions and co-ops around the world so that we can build the critical mass of workers' capital to at least create the models for the better world and to be able to put those in place so that when we march in the street, we are not simply saying no to government or employers. We are saying yes to our own social policies that, that are built upon uh, collectivism, uh, solidarity, uh, the fact that we, we don't leave um, our wounded behind. We always take them with us and make sure we care for them. That's what the planet's demanding of us at the moment. Uh, it's demanding of capitalism, but capitalism can't, uh, it, it, it simply can't do it, of course, because it's the cause of the, the decline into a runaway climate emergency. Thanks tonight to Edie Shepherd from Original Energy, to Greg Mullins from the Climate Emergency Leaders, and the students who got us all together on Zoom to talk about how unions and First Nations can help fight off gas, more gas, and bring on COVID recovery packages, the sort of packages that will stimulate a zero emissions future. This is core business for Beyond Zero Emissions. We've been cooperating increasingly with unions and diverse community members in our Zero Carbon Communities project. Thank you to Elizabeth Maddox for reading to us from her novel, Category 5, and to Shoy Sengupta, who told us about the Day of Climate Action on September the 25th. Thanks also to Annie McLaughlin at 3CR for letting us use Dave Karen's talk, and to Dave himself for being such a relentlessly positive visionary. I'd also like to thank Tim at Tipping Point and Michaela and Andy at 3CR, who helped me through a few hours of technology-induced frustration. I was really feeling wretched and they all helped me, so thank you to them. And who will tell the people that free speech is a ruse? The corporations run the country and then they make the news. Is it media or mind control? Heroic victories or crimes? Who will that we're living in these times. So now for some action this week. I don't think you could go any further than having a look at the website of School Strike for Climate. You can download resources to hand out at your school, your workplace or your union. And if you are locked down, how about emailing them? We'd really like to build momentum and hope that September the 25th will be a big event, even if some of it is online. It's called Build Our Future and it's about climate justice and jobs. As you heard, the students have been on a deliberate learning curve. Let's help them and stop the government giving billions to turbocharge the gas industry and poison First Nations lands like the Beetaloo Basin. I'm glad you were listening tonight to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. I, I guess I'm frustrated Thinking about all the places I should have been by now And I'm endlessly waiting Feel like the barrel of dynamite waiting for flame to come
Все 